When it comes to weight management, we tend to focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. That's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up today. Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies. My name is Daniel Port and thank you for joining me here again this week as we are here every single Friday to talk about the players who have had the greatest impact on telling the story of baseball and creating and crafting the mythology and legends of the most beautiful game played throughout the entire world. As promised, this is going to be the third part or episode in my current series on the greatest or some of the greatest Japanese players to ever play baseball both overseas and here in the in the US. And I had mentioned last week that there's one player I really wanted to cover when I started this series, and that was Hideo Nomo. Sometimes we celebrate the all-time greats, and sometimes it's almost more important, though, to acknowledge and celebrate those who paved the way for the all-time greats. There are those who might not end up too highly on all-time lists or even our all-time list here on the podcast or anything, but they might be just as important telling the story of a sport or a player within that sport, sometimes through innovation, sometimes through leading the way for future players, and, and some actually through making cultural change. In basketball, David Thompson, for instance, was a high-flying dunker, the likes of which the NBA had never really seen before, and he changed the way the game was played and served as the blueprint for Michael Jordan. Dick Fosby changed the uh, the high jump in track and field forever by creating the Fosby flop in 1968, and now it's the standard technique across the entire event. We all know the impact Jackie Robinson had on shaping the cultural future of baseball in desegregating the game, but there are so many more athletes who have culturally changed their sports for the better. In tennis, you had Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe paving the way for African Americans, and Martina Navratilova serving as one of the most prominent superstar athletes to come out as uh, gay in their prime, and Billie Jean King changed how we discuss sports across gender barriers. Magic Johnson shaped the conversation for the better around HIV, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Muhammad Ali were driving forces in the fight for African-American rights. And it's hard to measure the impact these people have had in their sports and in society and across cultures. And if you're looking for who broke down the barrier for Asian baseball players to come to Major League Baseball, especially Japanese players, you need to look no further than Hideo Nomo. A true phenom in any sense across Japanese and uh, American baseball. When he came to Major League Baseball in 1995, he paved the way for Japanese players to come over to the States, forever changing the game of baseball for the better. It's impossible to really measure the impact Hideo Nomo had 
on the history of Major League Baseball. Without him, it's possible we never get Ichiro Suzuki in the majors six years later or any of the other great Japanese players like Kazuhiro Suzaki, Hideki Matsui, Kazuo Matsui, Daisuke Matsuzaka, Hiroki Kuroda, Koji Uehara, Hisashi Iwakuma, and, and so many more. I'm sure there's even more I'm forgetting. And while I'm sure, given time, the closer and closer we get to today's day, things would eventually change for the better in terms of America's willingness to accept Japanese players and also their ability to come over here through contractual reasons and things like that that we'll cover in a minute. So I'm sure we probably still would have gotten some of these players, especially the more recent and modern ones, but you never know. We might not have even gotten you Darvish, Masahiro Tanaka, Kenta Maeda, or even Shohei Otani. Nomo's impact in this reign is immeasurable. Regardless of what Nomo accomplished as a player, that's one heck of a legacy to leave behind. You genuinely cannot tell the story of baseball without talking about Hideo Nomo. That is a stone-cold truth. And just to give you an example, as author and Japanese baseball expert Robert Whiting would write, the history of the Japan-America baseball relationship can be divided into two eras, pre-Nomo and post-Nomo. And, oh, by the way, not only did it have this impact, but he was pretty freaking good, too. Now, before we tell Hideo Nomo's story, let's take a large-scale view, as we love to do here on this podcast. Across 19 seasons in Japan's Nippon Professional Baseball Leagues and Major League Baseball, Nomo pitched in 486 games while making 476 starts. Across those games, he threw 3,128.1 innings, with 3,229 strikeouts with a 3.87 ERA and a 1.35 whip. Those innings pitched would rank 118th all-time, just behind Oral Hershiser, Justin Verlander, and only 41 innings pitched behind Hall of Famers Whitey Ford and Mordecai Brown. In terms of strikeouts, he'd rank 12th all-time, just ahead of Max Scherzer, and just 113 behind Hall of Famer Phil Negro and 142 behind Greg Maddox. His 206 wins is 108th all-time, just ahead of Hershiser. He was a five-time MPB All-Star and was an All-Star in 1995 in the major in Major League Baseball. He was an MPB MVP and has won the Pitch and Triple Crown to go along with two no-hitters in the majors and being one of the only players ever to win the Rookie of the Year in the MPB and in Major League Baseball. All in all, it's one heck of a career and it's honestly hard not to be impressed and even if you're not trust me by the time I finish telling this story I'm pretty sure you will be now Hideo Nomo was born to a working-class family in 1968 in Osaka Japan he was raised to play baseball from the very beginning by his father and legend has it that it was in elementary school that Nomo originally developed this incredibly unique corkscrew or tornado style wind-up go to YouTube Go and watch video of Nomo pitching. It's If you've never seen it, it is a unique experience. that I can't, I can't really express what it feels like to see Hideo Nomo pitch for the first time. It's, it's really cool. Definitely go check it out if you haven't seen it before or if you need a refresher. But essentially when Nomo would start his windup, he would twist his body around so far that his back was nearly to the hitter. You could read his name on the back of his jersey essentially and then his whole body would snap back for the top 
and Noma's hand would fly into view almost entirely at the point of release, hidden right up until that point. And this would make it incredibly hard for a hitter to pick up and tell what kind of pitch was coming. The same Robert Whiting described it as, he would raise his arms high above his head, he'd turn his back to the batter, he'd raise his pivot leg and freeze for a second before throwing. And it was incredibly deceptive. And it's hard to look back through the historical record here in America talking about this windup because oftentimes the writers would, when he came over here in 1995, dismissed it as a gimmick. But once you understand physics and biomechanics, the motion is almost kind of genius. And even as an adult, Noma wasn't exactly a huge athlete. He wasn't tiny by any means. He was 6'2", 210 pounds. So it was not a small guy, but wasn't exactly huge either. And he created this windup, at least as the legend goes, when he was a fifth grader. So let's assume he also was not a particularly enormous fifth grader. But the, what the motion will have allowed him to do is generate extreme velocity at any age, really and frankly for any build, because the biomechanics will allow physics and gravity to create speed and create velocity and propel his body forward biomechanically in a way that a lot of pitching motions don't. So why doesn't everyone pitch this way, for the record? It's hard. One, you have to be incredibly nimble and well-balanced to do this. Again, watch it. It's really hard. In fact, do yourself a favor, watch it, and then go outside and try and do it. It's very difficult. It puts a lot of strain on the joints in certain ways, but also it's worth noting the hardest part of it is once you turn your back to the hitter, you're not looking at the hitter. And one of the things that they teach you when they teach you pitching, uh, funny side note, I, I tried to teach myself with a pitch for about two years, and it went all right. But one of the things that every lesson I took or everything I studied that was trying to teach me how to pitch talked about essentially locking your eyes and your body in a downhill plane towards the towards home plate, towards where you wanted the ball to go. And when you hear, you'll hear, for instance, Nick Pollock, our head honcho and Papa Pollock, talk about when he doesn't necessarily like a pitcher's mechanics, a lot of times they'll talk about how if they throw across their body or if they do something that isn't on that direct line towards home plate, it can throw off your mechanics and can throw these things off. Well, Noma wasn't just using a unique windup, but he was literally looking at the plate for half of his windup. And that meant that as he turned back around, not only did he have to have his mechanics perfect, but he had to relocate where he wanted the ball to go. So it's incredibly difficult to do, but it worked for Nomo and allowed him to generate a lot of velocity at a very young age and basically dominate. He dominated basically every level as a child. And because of that, that the aspect I'm talking about where you couldn't always look at the plate, the one thing to note with this windup is while it was incredibly deceptive and made it incredibly difficult on hitters, it also sometimes was prone to wildness. As we'll see throughout his career, Nomo was a little promo to walks, and that is the downside of this tornado-style windup. Anyways, weirdly, despite dominating all throughout his childhood and dominating in high school, which, as I've said before, in Japan, high school baseball is more akin to college sports. He even threw a perfect game, by the way, in high school. He wasn't that highly recruited by college and pro scouts. So with that in mind, Nomo went and played semi-pro ball where he perfected his windup and developed a fork ball. And the fork ball would end up becoming his most devastating trademark pitch. 
And as the story goes, Nomo was so dedicated to perfecting this forkball that he would actually sleep with a tennis ball taped between his two, uh, his index finger and his middle finger to make sure he got the spread that he needed there on that forkball. Now, in 1988, he makes Team Japan, which served really, frankly, as the perfect showcase for Nomo as the team would win silver at the Olympics that year. And by the time all was said and done, NPB teams were fighting over themselves to recruit Nomo, who performed great for Team Japan. Apparently, the eight teams that offered Nomo a contract that year was an NPB record at the time. And in the end, Nomo signs with his hometown team in Osaka, the Kintetsu Buffaloes, and received a $1 million signing bonus to do so. Nomo commanded so much demand that he was actually able to stipulate in his contract that the team couldn't change his windup or alter it in any way. Could you imagine an MLB rookie having the kind of leverage to demand that? It's just wild. Most rookies would get laughed out of the room if they tried that. But then again, to give you an idea, Nomo threw right around 94 to 95 miles an hour apparently on his fastball at the time, which if you want some perspective, that's not as impressive right now. But in 1989, at that time, the average major league fastball is right around 87 miles an hour. I mean, maybe he had a point. <laughs> um, yeah. So Nomo's rookie season for the Kintetsu Buffaloes in 1990 was one for the ages. Across 29 games and 27 starts, Nomo throws 235 innings with 287 strikeouts and a fantastic 2.91 ERA and a 1.17 whip. He wins 18 games while throwing 21 complete games. And I'd like to think about that for just a, a second here. So hold on. He made 27 starts that year. 21 of them were complete games. That means 78% of his starts that year were complete games. That's crazy. 78%. Since 1950, only one pitcher in North American baseball has thrown more complete games in their rookie season than Nomo's 21 complete games, and that was Mark Fidrich in 1976 when he threw 24 complete games across 29 starts. That's it. Just one. That's how good this season was. That's how rare a rookie season this season from Nomo was. Now, he wins Rookie of the Year. He wins the MVP award. And he wins the Saro Muro Award, which is the NPB equivalent of the Cy Young Award. To this day, no player in any league anywhere in the world has ever won the MVP, Rookie of the Year, and Pitcher of the Year Award in the same season. No one. Only Hideo Nomo. And honestly, that's not even all, actually. He, he had more accomplishments that season. He also won the Pitch and Triple Crown that year and was named to the All-Star Game. That many accolades at such a young age really has no precedence. It literally has never happened before. It hadn't happened then, and it happens not happened since then. It honestly might be the greatest rookie season by a pitcher ever. I know that's hyperbole, but it might not be hyperbole. That's how good it was. <laughs> and for the record, by the way, just 21 years old at this point. Incredibly young to be pitching that well and playing that well, facing the best of the best in Japan. He was given the nickname Tatsumaki, which was Japanese for Tornado, which is just a great nickname for a player. Even, even the offseason after his rookie year actually had more accolades and excitement in store for Nomo as several MLB All-Stars actually came over that year and played a seven-game exhibition series against the Japanese All-Stars. And over that, that series, Nomo excels. And the story goes that after he pitched, Randy Johnson, Randy freaking Johnson, approached him 
telling him he belonged playing baseball in the major leagues. And aside from, obviously, a sense of superiority about American baseball, and you know how I feel about that, that I feel like that is a misguided notion, Johnson's point wasn't necessarily, well, come play American baseball where baseball's real or something like that. What he was trying to say is that he felt Hayden Nemo was one of the best players in the world. And, and that's coming from Randy Johnson. Now, Nomo had always had dreams of playing baseball in America his entire life. And this moment is probably one of the moments that kind of solidified that dream into a reality for him. But if we're being honest, that reality is still a few years off for Nomo, but we'll get there. Don't worry. Now, could there possibly be an encore to such an incredible season? Turns out, yes. While he certainly couldn't match the accolades he had earned the year before, Nomo definitely didn't have a letdown season in 1991. Going 17-11 across 29 starts, Nomo threw 22 complete games in 242.1 innings pitched with 287 strikeouts to go along with a 3.05 ERA and a 1.28 whip. While he wasn't named the Saramuro Award winner or the MVP for the second year in a row, it was certainly a season worthy of either of those awards and was proof that Nomo was not a one-hit wonder. He leads the league in wins and in strikeouts, and it was at this point that Nomo became the biggest name in Japanese baseball at the time, and he actually starts to get notoriety all over the world. And you start to see the inklings of the superstar and, frankly, cultural phenom that Hideo Nomo would end up becoming. Now, in 1992, he throws 216 innings across 30 games and 29 starts to go with 17 complete games and to go along with 228 strikeouts, a 2.66 ERA, and a 1.23 whip. 1993 showed the first real signs of kind of that double-edged sword I mentioned contained within the wildness of his windup. So he wins 17 games again while throwing 243 innings across 32 starts and 14 complete games, and he strikes out 276 batters. But he also walked 148 hitters, which then had a big hand in why he had a 3.70 ERA and a 1.43 whip that season. Now, moving into 1984, Nomo gets a new manager this year in Japanese Hall of Fame pitcher Keishi Suzuki, who... Compared to his Nomo's previous manager, it was quite a bit more regimented and extreme. It's described once as militaristic, almost. And according to author Robert Whiting in his book, The Samurai Way of Baseball, The Impact of Ichiro and the New Wave from Japan, Suzuki's approach to arm soreness was simply that you need to throw more. And was quoted by living by the motto of throw until you die, which frankly sounds a little uh, melodramatic, but... But the sentiment rings true, and that it was certainly something that was instilled into Nomo as well. And throughout his career, Hideo Nomo was legendary for his work ethic and his regiment. And I, I'm sure that this experience helped shape that in a large way. But it's also worth noting this approach also took its toll on Nomo's arm. When you combine that with the fact that by the time he would leave the NPB in 1995, he would throw he would have thrown. 140 pitches in 61 different games, and even through 191 pitches in one game. Just hearing that makes my shoulder hurt. 
let alone actually having tried to do it. I'm shocked even at this point his arm hasn't exploded into a million pieces, a la like Sandy Koufax style. Now, it's just so hard to do that and remain healthy. And we go into the 1994 season, injuries actually plague that season for him. They limit him to just 114 innings across 17 games started. And he had a 3.63 ERA with 126 strikeouts, 86 walks, and a 1.60 whip. And at this time, almost one of the biggest superstars in Japanese baseball. He is beloved. Really, honestly, the buzz about him in Japan couldn't get bigger. And honestly, it was starting to trickle over into the U.S. and growing bigger and bigger. And... At the end of the season, little did we know over here in the U.S. that we stood on the edge of what would later be called nomomania in the U.S. But we're going to jump into that in just a second here. But before we do, let's actually take our first break here. Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom has created weight management programs that are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. So stop chasing health trends and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Perfect. Thank you. Welcome back. Now, at Age 26, it's unknown if the injuries and the, the sort of regimented life, lifestyle and time contributed to Nomo feeling increased pressure to come play in Major League Baseball. It almost as if every pitch he threw was one less pitch he'd get to throw in America. Uh, and so in the offseason, he got things in motion to do exactly that, to come over and play in Major League Baseball. Now, there was one thing that stood in his way of doing that, though. His contract with Kintetsu had a clause blocking him. They wouldn't let him go actually play in the States. Essentially, the way contracts work in the NPB is that he wasn't a Japanese free agent until he played 10 years in the league. And part of that was after a player named Masanori Murakami had jumped over to the majors in 1964. The U.S. and Japan got together back in that day and pledged to honor each other's contracts. So essentially, if you were a 10-year, under a 10-year contract in Japan, and a player's like, I want to come play, and the U.S. response was, great, talk to us when your contract is up. Once you're a free agent, we can do that. And you you have to imagine this had been one of the larger roadblocks for decades to players coming over to play in the majors, and, and that's... Before you factor in then some of the cultural barriers in terms of U.S. distrust and dislike for, for Japanese players and politics and 
this had to have impeded players coming over to play in the majors uh, until this point. But don't worry, all this would change. You know, and it's almost entirely thanks to Nomo and his efforts and his desire to come play baseball in the U.S. So he meets with agents Don Nomura and Arn Tellum, who helped him comb through his contract and look for loopholes in that contract to try and see if there was a way that they could get him over there that year. And finally, they found one in what was called the Voluntary Retirement Clause. Basically, if Nomo retired and then later came back to the MPB, he would have to play out his contract with Kintetsu. We've seen the contracts of this work this way in U.S. sports. But if he retired from the NPB and then decided to play in another league, he was not bound in the same way to Kintetsu. So that's exactly what he does. He retires from the NPB and just says, cool, I'm a free agent now. I'd like to come play in the U.S. And he works to discover what his MLB home would be. And it's interesting because I think we all remember, and I talked about this a little while back on the Shohei Otani episode, where there was this huge sort of process to this whole thing. But this was a first, so no one really knew what to do. It was a free-for-all. And so he goes and just interviews with several Major League Baseball teams, including the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Mariners. But Nomo really connected with then-Dodgers owner Peter O'Malley, and he decides to sign with them in 1995. Now, if these years and dates haven't quite clicked with you yet or you haven't thought about it yet, let me remind you of how curious this timing was and, frankly, how historic this timing was. So in the majors, the 1994 season had ended due to a very infamous player strike. Interest in baseball was down. Uh, a lot of fans were jaded, were done with the game, were vocally speaking out against it, and were checking out for the season. And there had been no World Series, and in fact, actually, the, the strike would delay the beginning of the 1995 season as well. And baseball needed something, anything, to generate hype, to get people excited and get people coming back to baseball and to the game that they loved. And Nomo was exactly what the doctor ordered. Nomo mania, as it would later be dubbed by the LA Times, was genuinely larger than life. I, I don't even know if I can put... The correct perspective on it using words. You had to experience it. But if you read the retrospective, those written a few years ago by Mike Diogivana of the LA Times, when Noma pulled into the Dodgers Vero Beach spring training complex that year, there were so many reporters, writers, and cameramen following behind Nomo's car that they literally pulled up, had Nomo jump out to get the keys to the team dorm, hop back into the van. And they drive. They they would drive around the team headquarters in a circle for nearly thirty minutes until it was reportedly nearly fifty or so media members gave up and stopped following them. That's crazy. That's insane. That's how big of a deal Hideo Nomo coming over here was. Now, along with the hype, there was curiosity. There was also doubt. A lot of people, especially Americans, mostly white Americans, really expressed a lot of doubt about Nomo or was dismissive about Japanese baseball or any of those things. Now, um, Eric Karros often spoke about this. He was, played first base for the Dodgers at the time and, and really throughout a large chunk of Nomo's career there. 
and spoke very highly of Nomo. But he did say, we believe MLB is the highest level of baseball in the world. And here's someone who, yes, he had success in Japan, but is he going to be successful here? Is that wind-up going to translate? Will it be more effective? Maybe less effective? And he was echoing a lot of the curiosity that a lot of Americans were expressing about Nomo as he came over. Now, this didn't matter to the hype. Apparently, the Dodgers had to issue 200 additional press passes on nights Nomo pitched, and and they had to hold two press conferences whenever he pitched. One that was held in English, and the one was in Japanese languages, because there were so many Japanese-speaking reporters there at every single game that he started. You really can't oversell how big of a deal this was. And I think about this, so related to this. Uh, what? So 1995, I was 10 years old, because I was born in 1985. So as a child during this time period, I remember how this all felt. I honestly hadn't seen too many things like it. I, I remember seeing Hideo Nomo pitch for the first time. And the the very first instinct was to go out in the backyard with my friends, and we practiced his pitching motion for hours. And at one point, I got it down pretty good. Uh, at one point, I mean, at least for an uncoordinated 10-year-old. Year, uh, but that was the effect Nomo really had on all American baseball fans. If you peered into any given backyard at that time, which... You shouldn't do. Uh, That's just creepy. But metaphorically speaking, you probably would have seen the same thing all across the country. Everyone was fascinated by, was intrigued by, wanted to be Hideo Nomo in this country in 1995. It's genuinely, maybe outside of maybe uh, Michael Jackson, the hype of his fame is the only thing I can think of that I've experienced that's close to that. And that's really before... Let's talk about Americans. And that's really even before you get into the fervor and passion um, this stirred in Japanese Americans, who also were Americans, for the record. But what, what I mean is that white America. <laughs> the, that was us just going out and practicing his motions in the backyard and being intrigued and curious but he wasn't like a cultural icon for us. Whereas for Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants in America, he absolutely was. And because of all this, there really was no bigger story in baseball in 1995 than Hideo Nomo. And I don't think I properly appreciated it at the time because I was 10. Not being able to understand the gravity of a moment is part and parcel of being that age. But I certainly remember being caught up in the hype and the fun and feeling that energy and excitement that surrounded Hideo Nomo coming to the U.S. I may not have understood why it was important, but I got that it was important. I got that there was had never been anything like this before, and, and, and it would be quite some time before we ever saw anything quite like it again. And I knew that. I felt that's how pervasive Hideo Nomo's impact and hype was. And here's the thing. Hideo Nomo absolutely delivers on the hype. He's fantastic for the Dodgers that year. He goes 13-6 and six across 28 starts, throwing 191.1 innings with an NL leading 236 strikeouts with a 2.54 ERA and a fantastic 1.06 whip. He struck out an astonishing 30.3% of the hitters he faced that year. That's the 76th highest single season K rate ever and the 74th best K per 9 ever in a single season. 
Now, prior to Y2K, now you young pups out there might not remember that reference, but those who know, know. Only 12 pitchers had finished a season in the majors with a K per nine over 11 while throwing over 100 pitches. Randy Johnson's four of those seasons, Pedro Martinez is two. So in other words, just six pitchers have ever thrown a season over 100 innings with a K per nine over 11 prior to the year 2000, and Hideo Nomo is one of them. That's fantastic. That gives you an idea of just how talented he was uh, and just how good at striking out people he was. Now, also, to think of it this way, if you're coming into that moment and you're trying to feel how impactful that year was coming into it, as of 1995, it only had happened four times in the history of baseball. That's how rare his second rookie season, so to say, was at the time. And for the record, I know I've said at times that the the giving the Rookie of the Year award to an Asian player or a player from another country who comes in but's played professional baseball before coming over is sometimes condescending. I think for pitchers, I'm going to say this, I think for pitchers it's a little different. I really do. Because they have to learn so much more when they come over here. It's different. They're learning whole new hitters. I, I really do think that there is some place of saying, like, you've made this adjustment and we want to recognize you for it. And I think, like I said, I think it can be condescending at times. I think it felt condescending when they gave it to Ichiro, for instance. But I also think that with the hype and with the the fervor that was going on over over Hideonoma at the time, I think you had to give it to him. I think I think it would have been weird if you hadn't, just because you needed something to acknowledge what he was accomplishing and what he was doing. So this time, I don't know why, and I can't quite put my finger on it, but it doesn't feel as condescending as it did when they gave it to Ichiro or Shohei Otani. Now, I also want to take a second and say it's worth noting how impressive all this was when you consider the incredible pressure he had to be feeling. So he's the first Japanese born and raised player playing on what at the time was certainly considered the biggest stage in the game across the world. And not only faced incredible hype and expectations, but also had to have felt the weight of representing an entire nation and culture. The significance of Nomo's performance for Japanese people and for Japanese Americans cannot be emphasized enough. And I'm sure Nomo obviously had to feel that and be aware of that. But there's even more than that, too. Uh, when discussing players who come to the U.S. from overseas these days, we are better at being aware of the culture, language, emotional, and play style barriers that those players face. And teams are much better about being able to address those barriers and provide a structure for those players to deal with those barriers. But it's important to remember that Nomo's situation was, frankly, really unprecedented. So he was dealing with all of that as well without really the same modern support systems and processes we have today. So that's just thing upon thing here. And uh, again, this is without even actually addressing how popular he really was in Japan, where his family still lived. His games were broadcast on big screens across the country, and fans were let out of work early to watch him pitch. It was like every start was a national holiday. His agent, Don Nomura, described him and Noah's hype like this. He was the Michael Jordan of Japan, Nomura said. It was chaos. That's probably the right word for it. It came suddenly and unexpectedly, and it was just unbelievable. Everybody wanted a piece of him. And he even goes on to say, 
There was one company that wanted to get his DNA and put it into a wristwatch. I don't even know if the company existed. It was probably a bunch of baloney, but we thought it was crazy. This is wild to try and get a sense of the hype and, and excitement that was going on around Hideo Nomo at the time here. In fact, actually, Hall of Famer Tony Gwen, who was still playing at the time and got to play against Nomo, it got to the point where he couldn't even go to the bathroom without people following him, said Gwen, who there was a camera crew that literally followed him through the bathroom door. Then they realized there was a bathroom and turned around. You should have seen their faces. I'll be telling that story for years. Again, literally, obviously, Gwen might be exaggerating or embellishing a little bit, but it doesn't sound like it based on how popular Hideo Nomo was to have a camera crew so focused on him that they walked into the bathroom with him. I believe it. That's just crazy. Now, to go through all that and dominate is genuinely incredible. So he's named to start the All-Star game that year, and he wins the Rookie of the Year award, as I mentioned before, and finishes fourth in the Cy Young voting that year. Now, Greg Maddox rightfully won that season with one of the greatest pitching seasons of all time. I think he had like a 1.5-something ERA. It was just absurd. But Nomo probably deserved to finish second or third over Pete Ashorik and Tom Glavin, as he had a better ERA and whip, and about 80 to 100 more strikeouts than those players while throwing the same amount of innings. But that's more of a semantic argument, as he finished with five wars short of Maddox's year in total. So he didn't even have anything near an argument for winning over Maddox. But it's still an incredible season. And it's interesting to say, because you can make an argument, this is one of the greatest rookie seasons by a pitcher ever. So there's a point where you can almost say he had two of the greatest rookie seasons for a pitcher ever. It's just incredible. It's just a remarkable year, especially considering, again, everything he had to overcome and he faced that year. Now, that's not all for the year, though. The Dodgers would actually make the playoffs that year. Now, Nomo would make one start in the NLDS, and it went pretty poorly. He gave it five runs and five innings pitched. Uh, The Dodgers didn't play well either, and they were eliminated by the Reds in the NLDS. But either way, like I said, just an incredible season for the ages from Hideo Nomo. Now, the entire world. Expected a letdown heading into 1996, but Nomo wasn't on board with that. He goes 16-11 with a 3.19 ERA and a 1.16 whip over 228.1 innings pitched in 33 games. And he he racked up 234 strikeouts over that time period. He was with 4.7 war for the second year in a row. And a he had a slower start with a 3.51 ERA in the first half of the season. And that's probably what kept him from returning to the All-Star game. But he was absolutely incredible in the second half with a 2.84 ERA and a 1.10 whip over his final 15 starts of the season. Once again, he finishes fourth in the Cy Young voting. And this time, that was probably the correct place for him to finish. But still, it's just one heck of a follow-up season. Perhaps, though... I may be bearing the lead a little bit as I have left out maybe the greatest part of this season. On September 17th of that year, Nomo throws the first and to this day only no-hitter to ever happen at the Colorado Rockies Coors Field. I've talked about this before on the Nolan Arenado podcast, but Coors Field is enormous. It is one of the biggest ballparks I have ever seen. It has an outfield so large that honestly not giving up a bloop hit, just a, a hit that... The center fielder can't get to because it's just too big. He's too far away. Seems practically impossible, right, to not give up a hit like that. But Nomo pulls it off. And that year, to give you some idea 
of just how hard it was to pitch in Coors at that time. That year, opposing pitchers in Coors Field had a 7.06 ERA in Coors Field. And Nomo's no-hitter was the only complete game thrown there by an opposing pitcher all season long. The only one. Heck, look at it this way. Only 35 pitchers, period, managed seven innings that year in a start. That's out of 162 starts. That's crazy. That's insane. That's how good this no-hitter was and how difficult it was. And another big factor here involves the stamina impact of throwing a no-hitter in Denver, Colorado. So I live in Denver. And I have for almost 10 years now. And I can tell you the elevation in thinner air simply makes everything more tiring. Heck, even after all this time, I've seen Colorado lifers, Denver lifetime residents who need to catch their breath after a couple flights of stairs, regardless of how good a shape they're in. It just, sometimes it just hits you hard. Sometimes it just sucks the energy out of you. And it's great because then when you go back down to sea level, you feel like you could do anything. <laughs> you feel like Superman. But, but feats of stamina are particularly difficult here. That's why so many athletes come to train here for like the Olympics and for things like that. And to accomplish no hitter at this altitude is just not just a feat of skill, but of endurance and will. And not only that, but he strikes out eight hitters on the evening as well. And it's fascinating. He walks four hitters, but he did not allow a single run to score. And he went the distance in just 110 pitches. So he strikes out eight hitters and walks four hitters, but still throws a complete game no-hitter in just 110 pitches. That is a wild game and a wild box score. It's genuinely incredible. Just an incredible season, an incredible no-hitter. It's one of those things that will let Nomo live in, in infamy for for the history of baseball. It's, it's really cool. Now, the Dodgers do make the playoffs again in 1996, but once again, Nomo does pretty poorly in the NLDS. And again, as do the Dodgers. And so they're eliminated once again. And unfortunately, this would actually be the last playoff appearance of Nomo's career, which is a genuine shame. Now, 1997 marked a different season for Nomo at the age of 28. So inconsistently marred his first half numbers and led to a 3.81 ERA in the first half. But mostly he was excellent. He just had a few starts where he got absolutely shellacked. And otherwise, he was solid to elite in the majority of his starts. And as the All-Star break rolled around, everyone got ready for Nomo to repeat his fantastic second half act from last season. But fate, unfortunately, had other plans, though. On July 26th, Nomo was struck in the elbow by a line drive from Scott Rowland. And Nomo, honestly, is never the same. Uh, for the rest of his career, is never the same pitcher after that. Now, somehow, I don't understand how, Nomo does not miss a single start. But it becomes clear pretty quickly that something is wrong. He struggles the entire rest of the season with a 4.81 ERA in the second half of the season, and his strikeouts started to drop off pretty quickly while his walks started to go through the roof. Just all bad signs that something is wrong then within Nomo, whether it's feeling pain or in his mechanics or something. But pretty clear that something was not, that something was amiss. And the Dodgers would miss the playoffs that season, and in the offseason, Nomo would actually have surgery to remove bone spurs from his elbow, which, like, this sort of blows my mind a little bit in that bone spurs. I, I have actually bone spurs in my hand. I broke my hand playing football, and then 
been the same sort of act of silliness, tried to go and wrestle the next season. So maybe a couple months later. And it was my right pointer knuckle. And I started to feel a ton of pain in my hand, even taping it up and doing all these things. I couldn't bend it. I, uh, just all sorts of things. And I developed bone spurs in my hand. I can say it was one of the most painful things that's ever happened to me. I've broken bones. I've, I've injured. I've torn ACLs. That was one of those painful things that's ever happened to me. And I had to go in and have surgery and have it fixed. And honestly, my hand hasn't been the same ever since then. I don't know how not only that Nomo is able to pitch with bone spurs in his elbow, but that the, the, the Dodgers let him do it is crazy to me. And it becomes a great what if, because as I mentioned, Nomo's not the same after this. And you have to wonder what his career would have been like if he hadn't taken that line drive to the elbow. Or, and if the Dodgers had treated it properly at the time. And I know some people will probably say, I, I couldn't find any reports on it or anything. You might hear something like, oh, the player insisted he was fine. And this is something that drives me crazy because here's the problem. A player is always going to want to play. They know that's the texture of the money they're going to make. They know that they have to play. If they're going to get paid and if they're going to keep their spot on the team. The coach's job and the medical staff's job is to be the adults in the room. And, and that sounds exciting as well and, and infantilizing. It's more to say that I recognize the motivations of a player. So you can't just say the player said so. Be like, that's great. It's the coach's job to be like, I don't care. <laughs> We're going to make sure your elbow's right. And uh, I wish the Dodgers had treated it differently because it, it, it changes his career. It genuinely does. Now, those struggles that showed up at the post-injury there continue into the 1998 season. Nomo would throw 157.1 innings for the Dodgers, and his strikeout rate plummeted to a career-low 24.3%, and his walk rate skyrocketed to a career-high 13.7%, which is a bad direction for both those numbers to be heading in. He managed an abysmal 4.92 ERA and a 6-12 record with just 167 strikeouts. He was worth just 1.4 war. And unfortunately, this was just the beginning of the end for Nomo. By the end of the season, he is traded to the Mets, which ends his Dodger tenure just three and a half years into his MLB career. Now, in 1999, he pitches the entire season for Milwaukee as the Mets let him walk in free agency in the offseason. But his strikeout rate keeps plummeting as low as 21% as he manages a 4.54 ERA in 176.1 innings with 161 strikeouts to go along with a 12-8 and record across 28 starts. In the 2000 season, he, ends, he enters MLB free agency for the uh, third time at 31 years old and signs with the Tigers throwing 190 innings pitched across 32 starts with 181 strikeouts and a 4.74 ERA. Now, without the strikeouts, because at this point he's not striking out enough hitters, his walks become too much of a liability. If he's going to give that much contact, he cannot be walking that many hitters. And this is a big part of what started to cause his downfall around this time period. And it's not all bad news, though, because... Uh, it is worth noting, though, that during this season, Nomo became the fourth fastest pitcher to reach the 1,000 strikeout plateau in Major League Baseball. He still was making history, and, and, and it's genuinely impressive that even with two to three down years, he was still able to get to that plateau faster than really mostly anybody in baseball history. Now, 
In 2001, he joins the Boston Red Sox and for the most part has a pretty pedestrian season, throwing 198 innings, going 13 and 10, but the strikeouts are back. He manages 220 strikeouts that season, which led the American League, and that actually wasn't even the highlight of the season. The highlight of the season came in the Red Sox' second game of the year when Hideo Nomo threw his second career no-hitter at the age of 32, becoming just the fourth pitcher in history to throw a no-hitter in both leagues. It's also the only no-hitter ever thrown at Baltimore's Camden Yards. I love this fact. It's just that both of Nomo's no-hitters are the only no-hitters in those respective parks. It's just poetic. I love it. Now... Summoning every last bit of excellence he had left. Nomo strikes out 11 hitters in that no-hitter. And throughout the season, there were actually a couple more flashes of the old Nomo that year. He nearly throws another no-hitter a month and a half later against Toronto when he tossed a one-hit complete game with 14 strikeouts. He had three more games that season with double-digit strikeouts as well. And this kind of supplied baseball with a reminder of what he was and a hint of what could have been. Now, in 2002, Nomo would re-sign with the Dodgers, and while the strikeout excellence wouldn't stick around, Nomo reinvents himself as a pitcher, generating weaker contact and focusing in that direction, throwing 220.1 innings pitched with 193 strikeouts and a surprising 3.39 ERA across four, 34 games and a 16-6 and record. Somehow, this is weird for the Dodgers. Despite winning 92 games that season, in a large part thanks to Nomo's great pitching, the Dodgers didn't make the playoffs. They won 92 games this that year, and they didn't make the playoffs. In fact, think of it this way. They won 92 games and finished third in the NL West. That's how tough the NL West was at that time. And it's, that's crazy. <laughs> now, in 2003, the Dodgers would finish in second place in the division, And Nomo was even better than the year before, throwing 218.1 innings with a 16-13 record across 33 games started, while striking out 177 hitters and compiling a 3.09 ERA and a 1.250 whip. Now, while he didn't throw any no-hitters this season, he did actually throw a couple of two-hitters, and he looked like a reborn pitcher. But, unfortunately, it wasn't going to last. This was the... There's an old saying that I, I want to say it's an old saying, but I also think it might have been a quote from Dragon Ball Z that I once heard it really stuck with me is that a, a candle burns brightest right before it goes out. And uh, yeah, it probably was definitely a Dragon Ball Z quote. Anyways, I think that this is what happened with Nomo is it all falls apart after this season. At the end of the season, he was dealing with shoulder inflammation. And in the offseason, he has rotator cuff surgery. When he comes back, the velocity in his fastball dips all the way down to the mid 80s. To come into coming into the 2004 season, Nomo was complaining he just felt like he couldn't get behind his fastball at all, which elbow and shoulder injuries will will do. And so Nomo struggles mightily, throwing just 84 innings to the tune of an 8.25 ERA with a 1.75 WHIP and 54 strikeouts. And this will cause the Dodgers to release Nomo at the end of the year. Looking to get one more shot in 2005, Nomo would sign with the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. And he threw 100 innings with a 7.24 ERA and a 1.77 whip and just 59 strikeouts. Now, the important part of this season, because a lot of people are like, why would you come back for the season, is that this gets him past the 200 career win mark, which in Japan is, you, if you get 200 career wins, that's a check mark straight into the Hall of Fame. 
uh, almost guaranteed it. So this is really important for Hideo Nomo to get those wins and get over that hump. That is why he comes back for this season. But uh, injuries and effectiveness really limit him at this point. They, after the season, they he basically gets sent down to AAA. And he'll bounce around to uh, over the years to a couple different teams, AAA teams. And eventually does manage to convince Kansas City to bring him up in 2008 as a middle reliever and he pitches 4.1 innings it doesn't go particularly well uh, and so in July of that year Nomo announces his retirement at the age of 39 now while Hideo Nomo wouldn't make the MLB Hall of Fame and, and I get because it's limited to being a national Hall of Fame not international Hall of Fame he probably shouldn't have made the Hall of Fame while I disagree with that I think it should be an international Hall of Fame if they want to tout it the way that they do but I don't get to make that call <laughs> Now, on the other hand, he was inducted into the Japanese Hall of Fame on the first ballot, which I believe he's one of only three players. I believe it's him, Ichiro, and Sadaharu Oh are the only players to have ever been inducted in the Japanese Hall of Fame on their first ballot. And and it's well-deserved. And the Japanese Hall of Fame does consider itself an international Hall of Fame, so that makes sense. So that's the career of one Hideo Nomo, and just an impressive baseball player, a trailblazer, who paved the way for a ton of Japanese players. And if you want to hear a few players talking about Nomo, Hideki Matsui said about Nomo, he was a pioneer for all of us. He helped all of us come to the major leagues. All of the players who have come from Japan owe him a debt of gratitude. Ichiro Suzuki said before Hideo came over here, everyone had an image of Major League Baseball, and people looked at players over here as monsters because they were so big said Ichiro Suzuki. We were able to watch more MLB games. We were able to get an image of, maybe I can play in the big leagues. I think that's a part that we don't think about enough. Is not just because obviously a ton of MLB games probably weren't broadcast over in Japan. This was the first chance they really got to to see what the game was like. And and so weren't either feeling intimidated or pushed out of the game. They felt we could handle this. And, and so to see Nomo succeed and see those things probably inspired a lot of players to feel like they could do that, make that leap. Dave Wallace, who was a former Dodgers pitching coach when Nomo was there, reflecting on on Nomo and his legacy, he said, he was the first one. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain. He set the table for a lot of guys who are now reaping the benefits. Japanese players will always owe him for that. And this is right from the mouths of those who he paid the way for and for others who came across Nomo's path. And I really hope that by now, a little bit over an hour, uh, if not nearly an hour, into this episode, you too have a, have a sense of just how impactful Hideo Nomo was for Japanese players coming to America and just how important he is for telling the story of baseball across the globe. I honestly don't know if I've even done it justice here. Now, I guess the question that remains is just how important was he? We answer that question by ranking him on our list. That's the whole reason we're here. That's where we rank players every single week, and I think we should do that. But before we do, let's take our final break right here, and then we'll come right back. Welcome back. So let's rank Hideo Nomo, Hideo Nomo shall we? Let's start first, though, by revisiting the list. So to look at the top 15, we have at number one, Sadaharu O. And number two, Satchel Page. Number three, Josh Gibson. Number four, Mickey Mantle. Number five, Greg Maddox. Number six, Mike Trout. Number seven, Ichiro Suzuki. Number eight, George Brett. Number nine, Adrian Beltre. Number 10, 
is uh, Shohei Otani. Number 11 is Clayton Kershaw. Number 12 is Edgar Martinez. Number 13 is Sandy Koufax. Number 14 is Tony Gwynn. And number 15 is Hank Greenberg. Jumping down the list, number 20 is Kenny Lofton. Number 25 is David Ortiz. Number 30 is Jose Ramirez. Number 35 is Freddie Freeman. Number 40 is Jim Cat. Number 45 is Jorge Posada. Number 50 is Matt Williams. Number 55 is Cabrian Hayes. Number 60 is Aramis Ramirez. And number 65 is James Paxton. So, uh, you know, kind of taking a look at this and thinking, where does Hideo Nomo fit on, on this list? And, you know, I often will start with like a war total, right? But this is tough because Nomo didn't play his whole career in, in Major League Baseball, and we only really have war numbers for Major League Baseball. But if you look, in his time in Major League Baseball, Hideo Nomo accumulated 20.9 war. Now, when you add in his years in Japan, especially at such an elite level and with so many innings pitched, I would guess he probably put roughly 40 to 50 war together across his career. And this is to go along with two no-hitters, two Rookies of the Year awards, uh, a Japanese Cy Young and a Japanese MVP, and a Triple Crown. So quite the accomplishments there to kind of build a resume for, for Hideo Nomo. And, you know, I mentioned in the beginning of the pod where he ranks among several greats in innings and strikeouts, oftentimes outdoing Cy Young Award winners and, and, and pitchers we remember as being some of the more elite pitchers of their generation. He ranks up there in wins, and, you know, he really is two to three of the greatest seasons ever for a pitcher, you know, to his name. And I think when you factor in also the immense cultural impact he had on baseball and on Japan, and, you know, basically saving the game for the 94 strike. You know, I think this easily puts him past Corey Kluber at number 36. Despite Kluber winning two Cy Youngs, you know, you know, moving right past that, I'd even be willing to bump him up. You know, it's around number 21 where Johan Santana resides. And actually, let's look at that comparison specifically. So they had pretty similar length careers in Major League Baseball. Both of them were derailed by injuries. Santana had 1,988 career strikeouts to Nomo's 3,229 strikeouts. And, you know, and Santana only had one no-hitter, but he has two Cy Young awards to his name, and Nomo has two no-hitters and one Pitcher of the Year award. So, you know, pretty comparable. I, I think, though, you know, that's all without Nomo's, you know, numbers-wise. Once you add in... Nomo's years in the NPB, he, he so greatly outpaces most of Santana's career numbers that I think Nomo goes ahead of Johan Santana, especially when you consider, you know, then throwing in Nomo's pioneer status and legacy. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, if you go back and listen to my Johan Santana episode here, where I had Carlos Marcano uh, come on and he's from uh, Venezuela and talked about the importance of you know, Johan Santana and what he means to Venezuela and how they did much of the same things that I talked about with, with Japan doing with with Nomo starts where, you know, it was must-see TV and everyone was listening in the country. You know, it was so much bigger than just baseball. But even with that considered, I, I still think I, you know, Nomo really changing the ability of Japanese players to come over here takes a little bit of precedence. So I think all these reasons move him, you know, ahead of Johan Santana. And frankly, I think they move him ahead of Addy Josh. 
there just ahead of Johan Santana. Uh, you know, Josh was truly brilliant in his time in the league, but he pitched before the home run really was a thing. He pitched in the early 1900s, and he only pitched for 10 years. So, I mean, again, I think you talk about accumulation of stats. You talk about importance culturally and all of those things, and I think Nomo moves up ahead of him. Now, I think you could even potentially talk me into Nomo being more important than Manny Machado at number 19, purely based on cultural importance, you know, awards won, elite seasons, that sort of thing. But the hard part is, I think, if I were to then come back and revisit this in a year or two, Machado goes beyond him, I think. And then, you know, especially if Machado keeps playing for another five or more years, I think, you know, he's obviously going to way outpace him in war because he's already at 51 war, you know, right here. And, you know, I posited in the Manny, in the Manny Machado episode I did a couple episodes ago that I think Manny Machado ends up a Hall of Fame caliber third baseman, especially since Scott Rowland just got in. And that's the case then, you know, he ends up well outpacing Nomo and what he's accomplished. And, and you know, I don't have a problem using projected, you know, uh, sort of outcomes here. So I think, I think, I think with that in mind, I think this is the perfect spot for him. So I think based on projectability, I'll keep Nomo right between Manny Machado and Addy Josh, which makes him the new number 21 on our list um, of the most important players to telling the story of baseball throughout baseball history. So uh, that's a pretty good spot for Nomo considering the way injuries derailed his career. You know, I think it's an accurate measure of just how impactful he was that it brings him and, you know, pulls him up this list. So I, I hope I did him justice. But, you know, that's our episode. Uh, you know, I really do hope that I really accurately conveyed the hype and the importance of Hideo Nomo here and his legacy and his impact on the game of baseball. You genuinely cannot tell the story of baseball without at the very least talking about the 1995 and 1996 seasons and the hype and excitement that surrounded Hideo Nomo coming to America and pitching in America. It changed baseball into a true global sport. And it had always been a global sport, but I mean, I'm thinking more of it in terms of awareness and consciousness. And maybe that's just the American in me talking because that was the perspective I got. But it, it, baseball wasn't the same after Hideo Nomo came over here. So I really hope I was able to get that across. You know, but just a just a cool player. Go watch his go watch his no hitters. The the footage of both of them are on YouTube. They're really fun. Go go try and practice his, his throwing motion uh, just once, even if. And don't hurt yourself, but just try it. It's fun. You know, so with that in mind, I'm not even sure what we're going to do next week, right? I, I haven't quite planned that far ahead yet, but I'll, I'll let you know when I do. If you have suggestions or someone you'd want to hear me talk about, you can reach me at Daniel J. Port on Twitter, or you can reach the podcast at LB Legacies on Twitter as well, or you can email us at longballlegacies at gmail.com. If you have someone you want me to talk about, or any suggestions, or a theme, if you want to be like, oh, talk about players who did this, or talk about players at this position, or something like that, go for it. And I'll put together a series of episodes about that theme. So let me know. Uh, shoot, me, shoot me some messages if you have an idea. In the meantime, we'll be back next week, right here on Friday. Enjoy the rest of your Friday here and the rest of your weekend. 
enjoy some baseball in the meantime go go try a tornado uh pitch and you know thanks for listening everybody i really appreciate it but we'll we'll see you next week have a good one